Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Uh, So we're looking at Matthew chapter 28, verse 23, and going through into chapter 9, we're spilling over to chapter 9, verse 8. These are three miracles that Jesus does, and Matthew records this, three different types of miracles, Jesus calming a storm, Jesus casting out demons, and Jesus healing a paralytic. Jesus, uh, in all three of these, there's some unique qualities to them, and there's also some consistent themes running throughout, and It's that Jesus has authority over everything he has created. That's the the title of this morning's sermon, the authority of Jesus over all creation. And we're going to see that in various ways. And it was great. Devin brought up the passage in Ephesians that talks about Jesus's authority and supremacy over all things. There is a twin passage in the book of Colossians. This comes from chapter 1, verse 16. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Talk about authority. And we're going to see this in various ways this morning. This is, uh, in Colossians, a description of Jesus' supremacy, and we are going to see it played out throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So earlier, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount among a large crowd, and Afterward, Matthew tells us that the crowd was astonished because he taught with authority. It was authority that he has never, they've never seen before. They've, They've listened to the scribes, the teaching of the scribes. They've listened to the teaching of the Pharisees. And they're like, you know what? Compared to Jesus' teaching, there's, there's nothing like it. Jesus teaches with authority. And then later, Matthew talks about this event that takes place with this centurion that approaches Jesus, and he asks Jesus to heal one of his servants. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll go, take me to where he is, and I'll go heal him. And the centurion goes, no, no, no. I'm a centurion, I have people, I have servants, and when I command them to do something, they do it. It was this, this man understood what authority meant. And so he goes, Jesus, you don't have to go to heal him. Just say the word. Just say the word and he will be healed. And Jesus is astonished by this. He's like, wow, what, what faith is this, right? He's astonished by this man's faith. But Jesus does that. He actually says the word. And the servant is healed. And in our passage this morning, Matthew continues this theme of Jesus' authority over all creation, and he's calling us then to take courage 
or to have courageous faith in the authoritative word of Jesus. In other words, let me say it in this way, and this is, this is the main idea of our passage this morning. It's to take courage. And what I mean by take courage is have faith. Take courage because you are in the presence of one who rules over all sickness, oppression, and sin. Take courage. So let's read this passage together. I would ask that you would stand as we read it. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 28, verse 23. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along with me. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gardeans, two demon-possessed men meet him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Heavenly father, as we walk through this passage this morning. I, I just pray the Lord that you would speak, that you would reveal to us what you, what you want us to learn, what you want us to know about you, 
about Jesus. Lord, that we can be like the disciples, that we can be like this crowd and walk away astonished and amazed at who you are. Lord, this is our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so this passage that we're talking through can be easily broken down into three sections. There's three miracles that are taking place. The first one I title, The Mystery Man Has Authority Over Nature. The Mystery Man has authority over nature. This is verses 23 through 27. So let me set the scene instead of just reading it over. I'm going to kind of share the event with you. Um, and, and we're going to go back a little bit just to set the scene back into verse 18, where Jesus sees this crowd and it's a crowd that he's been ministering to. He's been teaching. He sees the crowd and he goes, you know what? Time to leave. Time to go. And during this time, there's a scribe. He, he has two interactions, one with the scribe and one with the disciple. But with the scribe, the scribe, as Jesus is preparing to leave and getting into the boat, he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you. It's kind of interesting how Jesus responds to that. He says, it's kind of a warning, I think. It says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so basically what he's saying here is wherever I go, let, let me tell you, wherever I go, I'm going to be rejected. I'm, I'm going to be an outcast. And so if you follow me, you're going to be an outcast as well. You're going to be rejected as well. And and we're actually going to see that take place. We're going to, uh, Matthew's going to unpack that a little bit more throughout the book of Matthew. But Jesus is kind of given this warning of, wait a minute, are you sure? Are you sure you will go anywhere with me to follow me? And here's the funny thing about it. If this scribe would have followed him, and we don't know if he did or not. Actually, later it says that the disciples follow him. We'll, we'll look at that here in a minute. So we don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. But if he would have followed Jesus, he would have found himself in a vicious storm, in a boat. He would have ended up with the disciples in this storm and so that's one thing about following Jesus. You don't know where you might end up. Amen? You may not, you, you might not like where you end up. And so the disciples, they follow Jesus and they end up in this terrible storm. And Jesus is sound asleep as they're struggling to keep this boat from capsizing. Right? They're trying to save their own lives here. And let me, uh, if you could just imagine this with me. I was trying to think through what this might have been like. I remember when I was in high school, I had a buddy of mine. We both quit our jobs in the summertime. He bought a wave runner and we parked it at the beach and we just every, we were just beach bums. We, we would um, just collect uh, pennies and 
coins, anything that we can from, from our car or from our couches, just to buy gas for this wave runner throughout the summer to, to ride it. And, and we continued on riding it through September and October. And I think like in, I mean, we, we rode it as much as we could. And there were times when, you know, the wind was blowing and the waves were crashing. And that was the best time to go out on this thing because you can get some air. We would launch this thing out of the lake, okay? But uh, with that experience, I learned a few things when it, when it comes to water and the lake and waves. One thing is, is when, when a wave begins to peak, and you know, a curl, you know, anybody surf? Any surfers around here? Devin's the only one in the front in Michigan. Lived here all of his life, but he surfs. Michigan. But anyway, when, 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 the, when you start seeing the white of a wave, instead of going over the wave, now you're going to go through the wave. The wave goes, well, actually the wave goes through you. That's what I learned. So, so when you're going out on a wave runner, number one, you have to keep the nose forward to the wave. And if it starts to curl, you got to hang on for dear life because it's not, you're not going to go over the wave if it doesn't curl, if it's just like a, a lump, you'll actually just go over it nicely. But when it starts to curl, now you're going to go through it and it will knock you off the wave runner. Or if you're not pointed forward with the nose to the wave, if you're pointed sideways, it's going to dump you. It's going to tip you over. So I just remember when we would go out, what, what we had to do is we had to go way out into the lake where it wouldn't curl and we would have to zigzag and die and dodge the waves to get out there. But if you got caught on the side, that's it. You're dumped. So I can see this with the disciples rowing through the sea, the wind and the waves. And I can just picture it, it had to be Peter, right? Don't you think Peter was in the front looking and giving directions? And, and, and basically what he was trying to do is keep that nose forward with those waves pointed at the waves. And he's like, you know, uh, Simon. Oh, wait, that would be Simon. Simon Peter, okay? So he would be, uh, John, row harder, right? James, it's your turn, row harder. Would you guys get into, come on, you know, just yelling and they're screaming at each other. And they're like, we need to keep this boat in line or we're gonna dump and it, our lives will end. And then here's Jesus sleeping. Here they are fighting for their lives and Jesus is asleep. And so finally, I could see it's probably Peter that's, that's like, are you serious? And he, and he, you know, probably nudges Jesus. Wake up! Wake up, save us! I love how Mark says it in, in uh, the Gospel of Mark says, don't you care we're perishing? Don't you care you're sitting there sleeping and we're fighting for our lives? There's Jesus sleeping. So the disciples find themselves in real danger. The, some, a lot of them are fishermen, right? So they finally wake Jesus up saying, Lord, save us, or don't you care? And I, I think it's a bit humorous that the disciples address him as Lord as they cry out to him, Lord, help us. They know he's Lord over sickness and diseases. They've, they've seen him heal. 
but they don't realize that he's also Lord over nature. So after they wake Jesus and ask him for help, Jesus makes this statement. He says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Now, if I was in that boat at that time, <laughs> waves crashing, I wake up Jesus to help us, and he asks me why I'm afraid. I think I would probably respond back, um, I think because we're in the middle of a storm and we're in this little boat and we're going to drown. And I think Jesus would probably respond back, no, no, why are you afraid? Because I'm with you. Hello? I'm with you. You see, the disciples experienced the power of God through Jesus. He healed a leper with a touch. He casted out demons with a word. Yet they did not trust that Jesus would protect them through this storm. They were afraid. And I love that he says, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? What he's doing is he's making a connection between fear and faith. It's actually a contrast. Did you know those... the, the the idea of faith is an idea of, of courage. Faith is, is a cowardly faith or a fear, a cowardly fear. When you're afraid, right? It's, it's being cowardly where with fear you're, or with faith, you're courageous. So it's this idea of cowardly fear versus courageous faith. And here's the amazing thing, and this applies to us. When there's catastrophes and crises and calamities, they can erode faith. We can easily be stricken with fear. When times of trouble comes our way, we tend to go, tend to get into tunnel vision. Our minds are so consumed with our own issues and our own problems that we don't necessarily take a step back and realize that the creator of the universe is a few feet away sleeping. Okay, maybe for us he's not sleeping. But he is in our midst. He is there with us. You see, we know that Christ is in us. Christ is in you. So why do you fear? Why do you fear? You see, fear causes us to stay back with the crowd. Fear causes us not to get into the boat. Fear causes us to let Jesus sleep, and we take the oars. On the other hand, courageous faith causes you to take that step to take the step out and to meet danger. You can endure suffering and stare down tribulation, not because of your own strength or your own power, but because Christ is in you. So they wake Jesus up. He gives a little rebuke to the disciples and, and this man that stands up, he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. With a word, be calm. 
boom, the wind is calm, the sea is calm. Talk about authority. Two words to the sea and the wind. Be calm. So can you imagine what that would be like to be a disciple in that boat when that happened? Whoa. Talk about shock and awe. It says that they were astonished. They were amazed. But they also had a question. They looked at Jesus. They looked at Jesus in a different way. They looked at him like, who is this? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? There's, there's a little bit of shock and awe, and, and I would say a different kind of fear now. Not afraid of, of death from a storm, but whoa, whoa, who did we get in the boat with? I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. I was trying to, there's, there's a few examples that I remember that I remember throughout my life of experiencing that kind of thing where you thought you knew someone and then something happens, it's like, whoa, I, I, I didn't know him. So I remember this time, this was, I think back in the college days, I was a counselor, camp counselor up at um, Center Lake Bible Camp. And it was, I remember it being like, I think it was family camp and I was with these uh, teenagers. We were in the chapel and we were playing this game that we love to play called Mafia. Mafia is this kind of this interactive game where um, you, you use uh, playing cards where you, with these playing cards, you identify who are um, the, the, the townspeople and who are the Mafia members and you don't know who the Mafia members are. And we're playing this game at night uh, late at night, and in this in this room by ourselves, it was kind of like this eerie, you know, night. And we're and and we're playing this game. And what the game was is you had to find the mafia members. Who were the mafia members? And they could lie to you. And there's a point where you have to everyone close their eyes, and then the mafia wake up, and you don't know who they are, and they actually point at someone who they're going to take out. And then they close their eyes and then you wake back up. And then it's like, oh, who did they take out? And then you have to find out who they are. And so it's this cool game of interaction and you accuse people and they're like, I'm not it, you know? So we're, we're playing this game and there was this kid that was next to me and, and we were palling around the whole entire week. We, we, got, we, we were tight. We had just a great time together and we're interacting. And he's like, I think it might be this guy because of the, and, 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 like we're on the same team. We're both these uh, uh, um, citizens, right? And we're trying to figure it out. And there was one, we, we got all the mafia members except for one. We had to get one more. And, and the citizens were dwindling down where there was less of us and less of us. And we're like, who is this? It could be either this guy or it could be this guy. I don't know. If we, if we don't get the right guy, we're going to lose the game. So which one is it? And, we're, and we pick one. And it was the wrong one. It was, the, it was a citizen. And we're like, I'm like, oh my goodness, it wasn't him. It was this other guy. And my friend who's sitting right beside me said, no. And he looked over at me with this sneer on his face. And he flashed me the card that showed that he was the mafia. And I am dead serious. This is like at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's nighttime. And a little tired. 
but I was like in fear. Like I, my jaw dropped and there was such a devious look on his face. And I was like, I don't know you. I thought you were my friend. And it was just this feeling of who is this? It was a feeling of fear and awe, like, oh my goodness, the turnaround. And I think that's just maybe a taste of what the disciples were experiencing when they come up to Jesus and be, you know, hey, get up. Can you help us? Yeah, I can help you. Be calm. Whoosh. Whoa. Who is this? Who is this that has authority over the winds and the seas? This caused the disciples to marvel. So for us, the question is, do we recognize who Jesus is? And in recognizing who Jesus is, how can that help us squash fear and embrace courageous faith? Knowing who Jesus is, and we know who Jesus is, it's been revealed to us through the scriptures and probably in our own lives. We know who Jesus is. How, knowing who Jesus is, how can that squash fear and cause us to embrace courageous faith? Guys, just think throughout your day. What is it that you fear in life? And what would Jesus speak to you about that fear? Okay, so the mysterious Jesus we see has authority over Nature, And in our next scene, we see that the Son of God has authority over demons. So let me set the scene for this event. This is chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Jesus with his disciples, they cross over to the sea and they end up encountering two demon-possessed men. Matthew says that they were so fierce and so dangerous that uh, no one could pass their way. They were two extraordinarily dangerous men, but when they encounter Jesus, that ferocity disappears. And it's because they know who Jesus is. So remember, Jesus was mysterious to the disciples, right? They're in the boat with him. They're like, who is this? Well, now they get out of the boat. They encounter these two possessed men and they acknowledge Jesus the Jesus says, or these demons say, he is the son of God. That's how they acknowledge him. What do you have to do with us, O son of God? Could you imagine being a disciple? Oh, wait, what? Um, Jesus, do they know you? Have you guys met before? What's going on here? How in the world do these crazy men, these fierce, dangerous men, approach this guy and address him as son of God. Whoa. Son of God, what do you have to do with us? And you know what? This is not the first time we hear about Jesus being the son of God. When Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist, remember he gets baptized, comes up, all of a sudden the heavens open, right? And this dove comes down and lands upon Jesus, which is the, the Holy Spirit. But then a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, and who I am well pleased. 
Wait, son? Uh, uh, son of God? Yeah. This is the son of God. Right after that, Jesus goes into the wilderness. And you know how he is challenged? How does the devil challenge him? If you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off from the temple. Now, let me tell you something. Satan is not a skeptic. He knows Jesus is the son of God. This is a way in which he's trying to tempt Jesus, right? Prove to me you're the son of God. Do some miracles to show that you're the son of God. Jesus is like, nah, I'll do that later. So the demons, they're not questioning. They're not trying to tempt. They just acknowledge you are the son of God. And I think this is an astounding proclamation. Imagine being there as a disciple and hearing this from these two demon-possessed men. That must have rattled them. It probably should rattle us too. But they continue on and, and uh, they ask Jesus two questions. This is verse 29. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So it's, it's almost as if they, ex, they uh, expect Jesus to cross the sea and they, th that they uh, didn't expect Jesus to cross over and engage with them. But once they saw that it was the Son of God who was before them, they, they thought the day of judgment had come, right? Is, wait a minute, are, are you coming here to torment us before the time? Is maybe the time now? Because they know what is to come. So you see, uh, these demons uh, coming into the presence of God, they are forced to acknowledge the inevitable judgment that will take place during the final day of judgment, right? When, when Jesus comes into their presence, they're like, whoa, uh, judgment's coming. And I'm wondering if that's not the same as us as followers of Jesus, us who have the spirit within us. I don't think demons really like disciples of Jesus. Because when we come around, it's a reminder that judgment is coming. You see, let me remind you that Jesus now reigns in the hearts of his people. And so when we proclaim his name, when we pray in his name, when we live by his name, we too will make demons shudder. And so now in our passage, though, the, the demons don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so they beg Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs. And by one word, I think this is great, by one word. The last time it was just two words, be calm. Actually, I, I think our passage in Matthew doesn't say that. It just says that he rebukes them. If you go to, I think it's either Mark or uh, Luke, it actually says the words, be calm. But in here, it does give us a word. And it's just one word, Go. We were talking about this during our Sunday school class, like maybe how he said go, like with maybe a little sass, you know, like go, see ya, right? But with one word, 
Think about that. The authority behind that one word, go, and these demons flee. All right, confession time. I really wish I had that authority over my children. All right? (laughs) I'm not saying my children are demon-possessed, by the way. I am not saying that whatsoever, but it would be so nice just to stare down a child and say, go, and they just go and brush their teeth, right? Wouldn't that be, usually it's, it's more of where I actually am the one pleading, right? Here, the demons are pleading with Jesus, please. With me, it's me <laughs> pleading with my kids, would you just please do what I ask you to do? But Jesus has this kind of authority. Oh, and by the way, I'm picking on my children, but, but they're awesome. And, and, and you might be thinking I'm p- picking on Miki. Miki on his own brushes his teeth. I don't even have to tell him sometimes. It's great. So anyways, I'm not, so I'm not picking on you guys. It's <laughs> um, I, I will not talk. I will not say. All right. But anyways, but Jesus has this kind of authority by one word, Go. And with that then, we see that the herdsmen, they see this. They see this encounter with these demon-possessed men. They see these, these demons go into this herd of pigs. The pigs freak out and go into the sea and drown themselves. And what do the herdsmen do? And I think this is kind of interesting. What, if, if we go back through these scenarios, what do the disciples do when Jesus calms the storm? right? They marvel. They marvel. What do the herdsmen do? They run too, right? The demons flee, the pigs flee, the herdsmen flee. (laughs) They start running. They're like, whoa, this is too much. And they go to the city and they start telling the city of what happened. And they're like, whoa, uh, we need to address this. So they go to Jesus and what do they do? They beg him to leave as well. This is too much. And, and we, can, we can actually question, wow, why, why would they ask Jesus to leave? You might think it might have to do with something financial, right? Here's like thousands of pigs. This is the, uh, the herdsmen, the, their livelihood, and I'm sure it really helps out the city. I mean, this is how they, they, feed, you know, they eat, and all of a sudden they're dead. They're, they're drowned in the sea. It's like, oh, uh, man, this is like an economic crisis when this man's around. And actually, you know what's uh, interesting is if you just jump to the book of Acts with Paul, Paul encountered this quite often too. There's a, the story of this, um, he's, I can't remember what city he's in, but it's a Gentile town and there's a, a woman who can, a fortune teller, this, this young woman who's a servant following Paul around. And she's like proclaiming, he proclaims of the son of God that can save people. And she's just continually talking and talking and following him around. And finally, Paul gets tired of it. He's like, oh, she's been doing this for days. So he turns around and he casts out the demon. And the people who owned the servant were like, that was how we made money. It, it that, that was how we made money. She would give fortunes and, and people would pay us for it. And you just cast out the demon. 
You just, you just drowned us. You just destroyed our business. And, and they wild up the crowd and they went after Paul. Uh, went after Paul. Another time, uh, I think this was in Ephesus, there were um, idol makers in Ephesus. And Paul's going around and he's saving people and they're, they're throwing away their idols and they're starting to worship Jesus. And, and the idol maker's like, uh, this isn't good for our business. And so they t- chase Paul out. And so this might be something a little similar where the city's like, well, this is too much for us. You're hurting us financially. You might not know that. But being a Christian and proclaiming the gospel might hurt societies financially. What's more important? Saving cash, saving money, or saving souls? I think here, Jesus, it's, it's better to save souls. Anyways, we don't know exactly why they want him to flee. It might, might be this, this is too much for them when it comes to this authority but whatever it is, they reject him. They reject Jesus. And so I think it kind of comes to this lesson that we might, we might pull away from this is, what do you do with someone who has that kind of power and authority? And I think there's only two options. There's only two options. You either run away and try to rationalize your rejection of him, or which you see in Matthew, and which many do in Matthew, you are to acknowledge him as the Son of God and and submit to him as your king. Two options. Friends, this is is kind of the gospel call, right? There's, There's two ways we can go here, two paths. It's either to submit and follow Jesus or to reject him. And you know what? In some ways, even as Christians, there's ways that we can, we can uh, just go off that path of following him, right? We can, we can start turning away and going our own way. And there's this call to repent, to turn. And that's something that we probably have to do daily. So I'm not just talking about believers and non-believers here, but I'm talking about us as followers and disciples. There are times when we're like, whoa, I think we're straying off the course here. We need to repent. We need to come back under the rule and the authority of Jesus. In fact, you know, when we're going to be taking communion, in a sense, that is an acknowledgement of what we are doing when we take communion it's this acknowledgement that, the, that Jesus has, has forgiven us our sin. It's this, Lord, this is what we trust in. This is what we believe, and we're going to continue to follow that. That's, that's exactly what takes place when we're taking the bread and the cup. Anyways, this, let me just draw this to a close, at least this section. The scope of this chapter that we've seen, chapter 8 at the end here, is to show the divine power of Christ by the instances of his dominion over bodily diseases, which to us are irresistible, over winds and waves, which to us are yet more uncontrollable, and lastly, over devils, which to us are most formidable of all. This is a quote, by the way. 
Christ has not only all power in heaven and earth and all deep places, but has the keys of hell too. What we're talking about here is Jesus and his dominion, what he reigns over, what he has authority over. And so the mysterious Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus, the Son of God, has authority over demons. And here's the last one. The Son of Man has authority over sin. So here's the last one. Here's the setting. After the city begs Jesus to leave, they get into the boat and they cross over again to the other side. And Jesus ends up in his own city, which is Capernaum. And if you read this event in the Gospel of Mark, it sounds like this, this might have been Jesus' house. Okay? So Jesus does have a, a place, a home to stay. He has a house, and it's in Capernaum. And um, when he's there, all these people come to visit him. And of course, who knows what they're talking about? They're probably talking about all the crazy events that just took place. There's this huge crowd, and these, these guys that are carrying a paralytic, they they're trying to get to Jesus, and there's so many people that are packed and surrounded around this house that they can't get to him. And so they have this brilliant idea, which I don't think is a brilliant idea. If I was the homeowner, I do not think this is a brilliant idea. But of course, we're talking about these guys, right? And guys have some pretty brilliant ideas at times. Hey, let's go up onto the roof and just drop them through the roof. We can't go through the door. Let's go through the roof. So they bring them, they kind of open up the roof, and they drop this paralytic down in front of Jesus. And I love this, right? The crowd is there. They're like, oh, whoa, what's going to happen now? Is Jesus going to heal him? Are we going to see a healing? Think about that, right? They kind of know who he is and what he's about. So they're ready for a healing. And I love that Jesus does the unexpected. Because he doesn't say, uh, you're healed, get up and walk. No. I love this. Instead, he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> uh, come again? What was this? Yeah, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's in this crowd some scribes. These are Bible teachers. They know the Old Testament very well. They know who God is. They know their theology. They know their doctrine. And they're going, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, only God can forgive sin. This is scriptural. This is from the Old Testament. I'll just give you an example in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. It says this, and I love it that it says it twice. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for your for." my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is, this is God talking through the prophet of Isaiah, but he's the one that forgives sins. And so the scribes are like, um, <clears throat> and Jesus is watching this. I don't think this is like some miraculous thing where he's, he's got this ear that he can hear the thoughts of, of the men necessarily by, maybe it is, but he could just be by looking at them where they're like, um, <clears throat> uh, blasphemy? Yeah. Right? Jesus picks up on this and he says, <clears throat> what does he say? 
He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? And then he says, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sin. Get up and walk, right? So this is really interesting. Remember, the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, who is this? The demons address Jesus and they call him the son of God. And now when Jesus speaks, he addresses himself as the son of man. Matthew is telling, giving some descriptions here of who this is. And the phrase son of man, I think we went over this before. This is in Daniel chapter seven. Let me read this for you quickly. Daniel chapter seven is is what he's referring to here when he says son of man. Verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now he's going to describe the son of man. He came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given what? Dominion. That word dominion can also be translated authority. He has been given authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion or authority is an everlasting authority which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus is pointing out here with his own words I am this Son of Man who has everlasting authority or dominion over all his creation. Therefore, he has authority to forgive sin. So they're looking back at scripture and Jesus is implying scripture when he calls himself the son of man as well. And I love how he proves this to those who are questioning him because basically he's saying this. He's like, look, you know that I have authority in my word when I preach the Sermon on the Mount. The people, the crowd that listened to it said, this man has authority like no other other scribes or Pharisees. He says, you know I have authority over healing. Just by saying the word, he healed the centurion servant. My disciples know that I have authority over nature. You've you've seen me cast out demons. My disciples have seen me cast out demons by the word. You know I have authority over demons. And now you're saying that I don't have authority over sin? Do you know who I am? So that you may know that the son of man, who I am, has authority to forgive sin. I'll prove it. Which is easier? Say that sins are forgiven? Or say to this this crippled man, this paralytic, get up and walk. So, So that you know that I have authority to forgive sin, get up and walk. And lo and behold, boom, this paralytic gets up and he walks and he goes home. How does the crowd respond to this? When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And I would suggest to you this. This is a different fear than the fear that the disciples had in the boat. The disciples had a fear of the storm. They had a fear of death. This was a different kind of fear. This was a fear of awe. This was the kind of like, who is this? Whoa. Who can heal with a word and therefore can forgive with a word. Who is this? So it's this, that kind of fear, a fear and awe, an amazement and an astonishment. And it says that they glorified God who had given such authority to men. 
The crowd saw what Jesus could do, and they gave God glory. And so again, it comes down to this question. Who is Jesus? Do you believe that he's just a good teacher or maybe a prophet? Or is he truly this God-man who has authority over nature and authority over demons and authority to forgive sin? If you knew who Jesus really is, how does that affect fear that you struggle with? And so where do you struggle with fear? And how can knowing Jesus help you embody courageous faith? And here's another question. Do you trust in him and believe he can forgive sins? Can he forgive you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, uh, in these passages, we, we see the power, the authority, the dominion that Jesus has over all creation, that he has these, this authority to, to forgive sin. Lord, I pray that we would have courageous faith and walk into that, knowing that you have saved us through Jesus. May we acknowledge that by what we are doing now to take communion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.